Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Drew McGarry is a writer. He was a longtime columnist at Deadspin. He's written features for GQ and The Atlantic. He's a novelist. In December of 2018, he collapsed after an award show in New York. Nobody really knows why or how. His friends found him in a heap on the ground, called 911, and paramedics rushed him to a hospital. In the days and weeks that followed, his life changed profoundly. We'll get into the particulars in our interview. And as a heads up, things do get a little graphic. In the night the lights went out, Drew recounts the accident. He chronicles his experience with brain damage and hearing loss. He interviews the people who cared for him while he recuperated. He also writes frankly about how he and his family have dealt with the aftermath. The book is harrowing, as you'd expect in a book about traumatic brain injury. Drew writes about his renewed appreciation for life, which you might also expect. But The Night the Lights Went Out is unexpectedly grounded and funny. In the hospital, he tries to bribe friends into sneaking him beer. Once he's out, he finds meaning and comfort in moments as small as returning a gift to the store. Anyway, enough setup. Let's get into it. My conversation with Drew McGarry. Drew McGarry, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. Nice to be here. And I'm excited because uh, you're the first guest I have ever interviewed standing up. That is to say, you are standing up. I am relaxing in a in a high tech chair. Well, once I learned that Donald Rumsfeld stood at his desk, you know, how could I not emulate the man <laughs> in all his greatness? Who would who would not? Who would argue well, with that? No, I have, I have a bad back, and my surgeon ten years ago said. Well, do you sit at your desk? I was like, yeah. I sat like everybody else where you sit, you know, in front of your laptop and the screen beckons you closer and closer and you get like a mighty hump in your back. They said, stop doing that. Stand up. And so I did that and it sucked for a week, but then I got used to it and I've done it for a decade now. Wow. I feel personally criticized because literally, as you were saying about being sucked into the screen, I was sucking myself into the screen. Yeah. It's just, there's, it's a natural human instinct to do that. There's nothing you can do about it. It's fine. Okay. Thank you, Drew. I'm not going to judge you for that. So your book is about a time your brain nearly exploded and killed you. Correct. Uh, or did explode and nearly killed you. It's more dramatic to say it exploded, although it's, you know, no one planted C4 in there and then... As far as you know. Yeah. And then left on a plunger, wily Coyote style to detonate it now. So what did happen? What happened was I suffered a severe brain hemorrhage uh, and fractured my skull in three places. All of this happened, I was at a party with my colleagues from Deadspin. We all worked at Deadspin at the time. We don't work there anymore. And we had a little award show and made some jokes. And then we all went to a karaoke lounge. We got a private room to do karaoke and to get drunk and do all that stuff. And I went, I had a slice of pizza and I had a beer. And then I went to the, or I went to a hallway to go to the bathroom and go take a whiz. And I don't remember anything that happened after that. I woke up two weeks later. And apparently what had happened was I had collapsed. Uh, No one saw me collapse. My colleague at the time, Jorge Corona, 
saw me from the room that we were in. He saw me out in the hallway, slumped on the floor, went up to me and then immediately signaled for help because he could tell that I was in dire straits, but I had no idea. I don't remember any of this. I was bleeding. I was speaking gibberish. They got paramedics. The paramedics thought I was drunk. Uh, they tried to get me to walk up out of the uh, the karaoke bar, even though it was in a basement. I would have had to go up these like sharp concrete steps. And my boss at the time, Megan Greenwell, said, please, for the love of God, put him on a stretcher and get him up. And then they got me to a hospital. They still thought I was drunk at the hospital. They did a CAT scan. When they got the CAT scan, they were like, oh my God, this guy's in deep, deep, deep doo-doo. Transferred me to another hospital. I had an emergency craniotomy about six and a half hours after I collapsed. And the doctor that I spoke to, who operated on me, said that normally people survive this sort of injury four hours within, uh, if, if, if they're operated on within four hours of collapsing. I got six, but I still managed to survive somehow. But when I woke up, it was two weeks later because I'd been in a medical-induced coma. And I was half deaf, couldn't smell anything, still can't. And uh, my taste had been compromised too. And I had permanent brain damage, which I had to learn to live with for a year and change. And I'm still learning to live with after the fact. And so the book is all about that. Drew, I'm going to pause you here and move back to emergency craniotomy. Yes. What does that mean? So I had what was called a subdural hematoma. So I had fractured my skull in three places. No one knows how or why. And that meant blood was leaking into my brain. Now, you're not supposed to have blood in your brain. Your brain is cushioned by cerebrospinal fluid, but there's not, blood's not supposed to get in there. But in my case, the blood vessels uh, on the inside of the skull had penetrated what was called the dura mater and were leaking into the brain and were going to dislocate my brain. Like, you know, you dislocate a shoulder. That's very painful, right? If you dislocate your brainstem, you die. Um, so I had all this blood leaking in and it was pushing the brainstem out of the way. And if it had gotten, and I, I can't be scientifically accurate about this, but you know, like another millimeter or two to the left or right, and I'd be a dead man. So they had to get me into the operating room. The surgeon, Dr. John Caridi took a saw and sawed out a hunk of my skull, removed it, took a, you know, a suction straw. Like, I guess if you're in a dentist's office and they put it in your mouth to, get your saliva, sucked out the blood, and then put it all back together, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it saved my life. And I remember I was told by my friend, Dr. David Heller, that he couldn't believe after the fact, he couldn't believe the, the before and after CAT scans of my brain because when he saw the before, uh, before I got operated on, he was like, well, Drew's not going to live. He's going to die. And, he, uh, and then Dr. Creedy showed him the scan afterward. He's like, I cannot believe this is the same brain. So I got some, I got some pretty good medical jujitsu on my side for that operation. But I wouldn't recommend having your skull cracked open uh, and having them <laughs> suck the blood out if, uh, if you can avoid such things. You know, I have uh, migraine, and I learned somewhere along the way that in early medicine, one of the primary treatments for migraine was trepanation. Like, there's actually you know, evidence of trepanation in, you know, cave dwellers. And trepanation is just cutting a plug out of the skull. And they would do it to let the evil spirits out. Yeah, it's essentially what I got. But in case in my in my case, the evil spirits were rogue blood that was where it was not supposed to be. So you don't remember any of this time. The times, the time that you were, 
speaking gibberish, the time that you were put into the operating room, or the time that you were in a coma. That's right. No, uh, to get an idea of what had happened, I had to interview my doctor, my colleagues, my friends, and my family, because they were all at my bedside, while I was in a medically induced coma. And what I didn't realize, because I just thought of comas in the pop culture sense, where you pass out for X amount of time, and then you wake up, and then you go fight crime again or whatever. And uh, But in my case, I was in a medically induced coma, and they're not consistent. They will lessen the sedation and bring you out to see if you are ready to be awake again. And over the course of two weeks, I wasn't, because every time they woke me up, I would start, I would go full Frankenstein mode and start tearing tubes out of my head and like screaming and ranting and raving. And my own dad would have to like hold me down and restrain me to prevent me from hurting myself. I have no memory of any of that. None. What is the first thing that you remember? It's difficult to say because I was still loopy from all the coma drugs when I woke up. So I had a lot of hallucinations that to me, even now, scan as actual memories, things that actually happened, but they didn't. So I, I do remember, I remember a nurse, and I don't remember the nurse's name. I don't remember what she looked like. I just remember asking her what day it was, and she confirmed that it was December 19th, and I had collapsed on the night of December 5th. I thought it was the next day, December 6th. And so I just have this memory of a, of a woman telling me that I had been asleep for two weeks. And I think that was my first memory, but... Everything after that is a bunch of puzzle pieces on the floor that I have a hard time arranging. I tried to do it for the book as best I could, but I, I needed people to tell me, the people I loved who were there to tell me what, what really happened, because my own memories are, are not particularly trustworthy from that period. Do you remember seeing your family for the first time? No, I don't know if I remember the first time. I just remember... One time I was awake, and eventually they showed up on the scene. But I don't remember it being, you know, there was no hallmark moment where I was like, oh, you guys, I love you so much, and all that stuff. I don't, all my memory of it is is very hazy, and my disposition at the time was not good. I remember I was in the hospital at Christmas, and my memory was that it was an okay Christmas. Like, my wife brought the kids and they came for an hour and they, they brought me some presents and they put some Christmas type stuff, you know, on the hospital room wall and stuff. And I, I was happy or so I thought. And my wife told me after that, she's like, no, you were a jack. You didn't want to see anybody. You were withdrawn and sullen and, and didn't want to talk to anybody. And her version is, um, you know, obviously the one that's more trustworthy and verifiable than, than mine. So, you know, I, I have these memories of my family they're all but scattershot. And so I, I think less in terms now of what I remember and more about what they had to go through. The moment that, um, or, you know, collective moment that I imagine being a huge challenge is the moment that you look at the people who have been there for two weeks, especially the people who love you, who've been there for two weeks, your parents or, or your wife or your kids, whoever, and you see in them the jeopardy that you were and are in, like what you couldn't understand because you thought you were just waking up the next day. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. I had no 
I was asleep for all the scary parts. So the only way that I could, you know, sort out how much trouble I was in, how close to the edge I was, was to see it in the eyes, really, of my parents. Like, every time they saw me, you know, it just, it looked like they had been through a lot. And when, even when they visit me now, they're just like, they hug me a little bit longer than they used to. They used to hug me before. You know, they weren't, they were always loving. But, you know, every time they see me now, it just seems like it's evident in their eyes that they didn't think that this would happen, that I would not be upright and lucid and, you know, coherent and would be able to speak to them. You know, as I did before, I'm a different person than I was before, but, you know, I am, you know, functional in in many, many ways that they did not expect me to be because they were told at the beginning that I might not make it. And then they were told, well, Drew's going to make it, but we don't know what he's going to be when he wakes up. We don't know, you know, we don't know if he's going to wake up at all. So there was this uncertainty as to exactly who I would be or what I would be. I could have been an invalid. I could have had an entirely different personality. I did have personality changes, but, you know, nothing so severe that you would say, well, he's an entirely different person. But I was not permanently incapacitated physically. I was deafened in one ear, but... Other than that, you know, they're they're pretty uh it's nice to see in their eyes. It helps me appreciate how far I came because I don't know and I can't know and I won't. The only way I can know is by talking to them and and seeing them. How long did you have to rehabilitate in the hospital? I was there for 3 weeks after I was in the coma for 2 weeks, which I was told was sort of the most favorable outcome. There was the possibility that I was going to be in the hospital for six months, like it easily could have happened. And I was in this state where like it made me nauseous to get up. Like even if my my hospital bed was lifted up like 10 degrees, I would get nauseous and angry. And I didn't want to go to occupational therapy and, and all this stuff. And, you know, it took, you know, the, the staff at Mount Sinai and my family to say, Drew, you have to do this. Otherwise, you're never going to get out of here. And thanks to them, I, you know, I eventually I got up. I started doing, you know, I started arranging cones on a shelf in occupational therapy and, and doing an arm cycle, like to, you know, get some sort of musculature back because I had lost 30 pounds while I was in a coma. So, you know, I, I was fortunate to get out as early as I did. But then, of course, I had to live my life after that. And that's when it got a little bit dicey. Even more with Drew McGarry after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Airbnb. If you've ever thought about hosting, you might have a few questions. What's it like? Where do I store my stuff? Is hosting worth it? Now, with Ask a Superhost, you can get free one-on-one help from Airbnb's most experienced hosts. Whether you're curious how to get started or just wondering if it's right for you, you can now ask someone who's already hosting. Learn more at airbnb.com slash askasuperhost. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Drew McGarry. He's been a writer and columnist for Deadspin, SFGate, GQ, and more. In 2018, he suffered a traumatic brain injury. He lost his sense of smell, a fair bit of his hearing, and he had to relearn how to do things he'd previously done automatically, like walk. He recounts the incident and his long road to recovery in the book The Night the Lights Went Out, which is out now. Let's get back into our conversation. 
when you were in the hospital, what did you know about the ways your brain had changed? And what did you have to have, you know, reported to you? So I didn't know really anything. I knew that I had to have brain, I knew that they, I had undergone brain surgery. And I knew that there was a plate in my skull, although there was a certain amount of time where I thought I didn't have a plate in my skull because I had a conversation with Megan Greenwell that didn't actually happen, but I thought it happened. And I still think it, I still, I still, I still have a memory of it happening, but it didn't happen at all. So anyway, so I didn't understand the full scope of what had happened. I just knew that all I knew were the basics was that I had to undergo brain surgery, otherwise I would die. And now here I was alive, but I couldn't get up yet. And that was really it. It wasn't until I got home and I saw the scans and I saw the damage to my brain with my own eyes that I understood something was different, but it didn't, it didn't happen right away. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a lightning strike. Like it just takes time. It's a very, very gradual thing where you take in a devastating piece of news and you don't react in the moment. You don't drop to your knees. You don't scream or anything like that. It just sticks with you. It just adheres to you and sort of grows around your psyche over time. And and that's that's what happened to me. I, I, I knew that something was wrong with my brain. But the other thing was that I was brain damaged. So I didn't, I couldn't understand how, what it had done to me without people telling me what was wrong. Because I, I didn't feel like a different person, but I was. Yeah, that's the part of that experience that, you know, reading about it made me feel the most disconcerted. It was the idea that you would be different in ways that you couldn't see within right. yourself, right? That your that your sense of self felt unstable because it wasn't describing the actual situation you were in. You know what I mean? That's right. And I thought, you know, I had convinced myself because I could eventually could walk and talk and, you know, get back home and stuff like that, that I could just be me all over again, that everything would be the same and that I could just go back to being Drew and, and writing, you know, because I could write, I could still write and all that stuff. So I had, you know, I had all these signs here telling me, well, you are who you were. But, you know, my wife pulled me aside and she's like, you're different now. You're not, you know, you're, you're on edge. You're not the person you were and you have to understand that. And I just didn't, I just didn't really do it because it seemed to me that I had this avenue to become my old self that I was determined to stay on and, and reach the end of. When you talk to people who knew you and cared about you, including your family, uh, in the sort of reporting of this book, how did they describe what you were like early on when you were released from the hospital? They were all very polite. Like, my, you know, I, the person who knew the best about how I was out of the hospital was my wife. And she was the one who was the bluntest. She was like, you were a <laughs> and she gave it to me straight the way you you know you have to do when you're married but you know when i was in the hospital i was irritable and touchy and sullen and my parents were polite about it but so my other coworkers uh like megan greenwell were like oh handling dealing with you was a real pain in the ass. like we would bring you food and you wouldn't even eat it it was terrible and it was sort of like it was funny because it's one of those moments where You'd rather have some gallows humor about it than really 
you know, reckon too hard with the fact that you might be looking at your friend, you know, undergoing a real wholesale personality shift that will, you know, haunt him for the rest of his life. You had to get back to work. I wanted to. Yeah, I was about to say, both because you had to pay your mortgage or whatever, but also because, you know, I imagine your identity is pretty closely tied to being a writer. It is, yeah. How is it different when you started working after you had been through all of this? Or when you were in the middle of going through all of this, I guess. I mean, there were, there were two things. One was that I could still write, which to me signaled to me that I could still be me, right? So that I had not lost that part of my brain. That was all still fairly functional. Like I could still do all that. The only problem was I couldn't stand up for very long once I had gotten out of the hospital. Like I could stand up, but I would still get woozy. I would get nauseous and I would get tired. And I, to this day, I still get tired quicker than I used to because of what happened. So I was sort of in this spot where I knew I could do what I was able to do. I could do what I was put here to do. But I had to sort of bull through all these physiological obstacles to get there. But I really wanted to do it because I really wanted something to do because I was bored. Like I was, you know, convalescence is really boring. Like I was supposed to sit there and let my brain heal. But, you know, the whole time my brain is like, I would like to do something, you know. So it was this odd thing where if you looked at my writing after the accident and I had not told you that I had been in an accident, you wouldn't have known I'd been in an accident. But the process of getting to my computer and literally standing up to be able to do it and to not like spaz out if my son interrupted me, like when the kids would come in while I was writing in the middle of a train of thought, I would give them the look, you know, I wouldn't scream or anything like that, but I'd be like, what? Like, I'd be very impatient and they would know like just to back off, which is not something you really want. It's not a reaction you're, you want your kids to have to you, right? So, um... You know, I'm I'm talking too long, but anyway, the point is that the the process of getting to the writing and then sometimes the content of the writing, like not how it was written, like I wasn't like missing words or anything like that or spelling words backwards or anything, but I was mad and you could see my general anger in the posts. When you talked to your wife in reporting for the book, what did she say about what it was like to be married to you while you were going through this? I mean, she said it was hard, you know, particularly when I was out, you know, like she had to worry about, okay, well, I was hospitalized in New York. We don't live in New York. She had to move the kids up, uh, you know, to New York for a month while I, you know, struggled to get out of the hospital. You know, she had to worry about whether or not I could ever work again. You know, she have to sell the house. What happens if I die? Things like that. And I didn't have to go through any of that. And, you know, dealing with me was a pain in the but it wasn't anything, there wasn't a moment during any of this where she said, I don't want to do this anymore. Which, you know, I, you know, I will be eternally grateful for that. You know, there's, there's nothing else I, I can say other than to just try to be the best husband that I can going forward, knowing how not to do things at the very least. Drew, you mentioned that you lost your sense of smell and you lost a significant amount of your hearing. I did. Was that evident to you right away? Like, did you notice it immediately? No. I never realized during my hospital stay that I lost my smell. Nobody told me. 
I was given a lot of food and I was like, well, this tastes good, but you know, kind of dull. Like it had been like muted a bit. And I was like, well, maybe it's just my concussion or something like that. Without realizing that I couldn't smell anything because it just did not, straight up did not occur to me. And I, I did notice that my hearing in my right ear was not terribly good. And I would snap my ears, my fingers by it, and I wouldn't hear it very well. And I, didn't, I couldn't tell if it was deafened entirely or if it was picking up something, but just not a lot. I assumed it was picking up something. And it was in the report at the hospital, but they were so concerned. And I was so concerned about getting out of the hospital that I just didn't think about it until I got home and the ear just was not getting better. And then I went to an ENT and that's when I saw the brain damage for the first time. And that's when he told me for the first time that I was permanently deaf on the right side of my head. How did you feel about that? Awful. I said, you know, I was like, well, that sucks, you know, but it was another thing where I couldn't hear 100% out of my left ear. That had been damaged too, but I could hear some things and I didn't really understand because I didn't know anything about hearing loss, the toll that it would take on me to try to hear the world with just 40% of functioning hearing and what it would do you know, to my energy levels and what it would do to, to my mind when, you know, I step into a crowded room and everything's a blur because I can't process all the sounds that are going on within it all at the same time. What was the hardest thing to relearn? What was the thing that surprised you with how difficult it was to relearn? I think it was learning to be a deaf person. So I'm, I'm, here, the hearing was the one thing I was not willing to let go. Like smell, you know, smell's pretty low on the, on the triage list of senses, right? Like it just is how it is. You're not going to sacrifice your eyesight for your nose anytime soon. But my hearing, I was not willing to part with it. I kept saying to my wife, you know, I'm going to get hearing aids. And then when the possibility of me getting a cochlear implant was introduced, I was like, I'm getting the cochlear implant. Hell, maybe I'll have to pay for it myself, but I don't care. I want that ear back if I can get it. Holy smokes. And I just kept at it and was willing to do whatever it took because adjusting to life, you know, as a severely hearing impaired person was just very hard. And then, you know, in, you know, you could even say, you know, if you're someone who like watched the sound of metal or, or admired that movie, you could say I even cheated by getting a cochlear implant and going back to sort of the, the realm of the, the hearing but, you know, it took years for me to get used to just the idea of having being a hearing aid person and how to live life when I don't have my hearing aids in. Like, I sleep, for example, I sleep with my good ear turned to the pillow. So I turn a literal deaf ear to the world so I can sleep soundly, which is great. And so my, my literal sleeping positions have changed since then. So I only sleep on my back or on my left side. Before, I used to rotate around like a shish kebab, but now I, I just stick to one side or my back. So... I had all these weird sort of, I guess I should say, accommodating tics that I developed to sort of help myself live as this new person. And it took time. It wasn't always, it wasn't always hard. Sometimes it was just an understanding that this is what I have to do. But it, it was never, ever going to be instant. That was for certain. How old were your kids when this happened? So my kids are 15... 12 and 9 now, which would mean 13, 6, no, yeah, 13, 9, and 6 at the time. So not an age you want them to endure that sort of thing. 
Yeah. What, what was it like for them? You know, I didn't interview them for the book because I thought it would be, frankly, kind of exploitative for me to do that. Like, you know, I think you can go a little bit too far with that sort of thing. Before I went to therapy, sometimes I would guilt trip them with it if they were misbehaving. I was like, hey, you know, I nearly died, you know, so you should eat your beans or whatever, something horrible like that. But then it, um, ever since then, whenever we talk about it, you know, I try to talk to them about it as factually as I can, you know, like I, I try to give them as much information as I can because the information that I got, you know, in writing the book helped me immensely, you know, sort of understand what happened to me and help me understand what to do going forward. And so I just think that educating them as best I can is all I can really do. And the, you know, the, the sort of emotional labor of it came when I was struggling in rehab, or I should say in recovery. And, you know, and my daughter saying to my wife, well, I liked the old dad better, you know? Why did she say that? Because I was angrier. You know, I'd snap at her. I was less patient. I was less kind. Um, I was less understanding. So it made perfect sense. You'd be, you know, if you were a kid, you know, you're used to your dad being one way, one moment, and then he's, you know, oddly hostile in certain moments after that, and you don't really get why, and you, you know, maybe you wonder if it's something you did or something like that. But I remember they were, you know, they were all very confident and very willing to say their piece to me, and especially to my wife, to tell her to tell me how I was acting, that my, that my daughter didn't want to eat dinner with me, because if she, did, if she didn't eat what I had cooked, that I would fume at the dinner table about it. Stuff like that. Like, very basic, small truths that add up to, you know, a lot for them to handle. Did your doctors or physical therapists talk to you about the emotional and personality side of this recovery process? No, because I never told them I'm having these problems because I didn't feel like I was having any problems. And I remember I went to a neuro rehab doctor when it was clear that I was having issues with my temperament and I wanted a pill. I just wanted any pill. And I said to him, I downplayed it to him. I said, well, I'm a little bit crankier than I used to be. I, I remember that was the exact verbiage that I used. And it really, it understated the idea that I was not as pleasant as, of a man as I had been. And, and, and he said, okay, all right, all right. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, if you don't bring it up to a doctor, well, doctors are busy people. They're not always going to, you know, they're not going to stay the extra 10 minutes and be like, no, are you really okay, Drew? You know, stuff like that. It just happened to be that way. The other thing was that, you know, I was, I was operating on New York and then I went down to Maryland and doctors, you know, they had my charts and all that stuff, but, you know, they weren't there when I was sitting in a coma or, or when I got out of the coma. So it, it's a bit disparate and, you know, you may not have every piece of the puzzle when you're, you're talking to a patient about this sort of thing. I don't begrudge them for any of that. It was still work that I had to do. How much of what you had to deal with emotionally and, and interpersonally was stuff that was born of the injury? And how much was stuff that had been unaddressed in your life otherwise? Well, that's just it. I think that there was stuff that I had before the injury that I should have worked out. 
but I was doing pretty well and life seemed to be pretty good. And so I was like, I'm all good, you know? And so in an extremely mixed blessing, you know, I would not have been compelled to go to therapy without this injury. And once I got there, you know, there were parts of me where, you know, it's not unlike my time in the hospital where I'm not quite certain where old Drew ends and where new Drew begins because there are still plenty of remnants in there. And maybe some of those remnants had anger issues in the beginning that had always needed to be worked out and simply hadn't been. And all this did was exacerbate them and bring them to light and reveal them, you know, more than they had already been revealed. We've got even more with Drew McGarry after a quick break. Still to come, we'll talk about how after recovering from a catastrophic brain injury, he decided to quit his stable writing job. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Lego. Who would have thought the key to inner peace would be so simple? Take some me time to deep dive into a Lego set. Whatever your passions are, from wonders of the world to movie magic, intrepid space exploration, and pop culture icons, there's a Lego set waiting for you. Experience the joy of a rewarding challenge at lego.com slash adults dash welcome. Build something you love and find your flow with Lego sets. Adults welcome. Look, it's a rough world out there, especially lately. I get it. So let's take care of our minds as best we can. I'm John Moe, host of Depression Mode with John Moe. Every week, I talk with comedians, actors, writers, musicians, doctors, therapists, and everyday folks about the obstacles that our world and our brains throw in front of us. Depression, anxiety, traumatic stress, all those mental health challenges that are way more common and more treatable than you might think. The first time I went to therapy, I was so ashamed, and I was like, can't believe I gotta go into therapy. Like, I thought I could be a man, and Humphrey Bogart was never in therapy. And then my dad said, yeah, but he smoked a carton of cigarettes a day. Give your mind a break, give yourself a break, and join me for Depression Mode with John Moe. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is writer Drew McGarry. His newest book is called The Night the Lights Went Out. There's this stereotype that comics don't want to go to therapy because they're worried that if they get less messed up, they're not going to be funny anymore. And uh, I feel like if I was in your position, there's a part of me that would want to go like, well, I'm a columnist, so I need to be upset about different stuff. <laughs> I, need to, I need to have takes. Yeah. I need to be cranky or, or else I won't have anything to be cranky about on my blog posts. Yeah. I did think about that when I went to therapy. I was like, oh, what if I, you know, what if I'm happy and then I, you know, I'm just content and I'm like, well, I don't have to write anything because I'm happy. But what, what happens then? Then I'm going to be unhappy. But fortunately for me, I still get irritated about things. Uh, that are out of my control. So I can write about that irritation quite well. And I can write about things critically, and I can write about, you know, how I relate to things other than just being pissed off about them, which you would never know is possible on the internet these days. But it is true. You can do it. Uh, And in some ways, you know, I hope that, you know, it made me more open and honest on the page. Uh, You know, maybe there's not as many, uh, you know, Molotov cocktails, you know, in the copies there used to be. But, you know, it's okay. It's okay to change and evolve and have your work change along with you. You kind of 
made your name writing for the website Deadspin, which was known for its kind of uh, irreverent look at the world of culture through the lens of sports. Correct. And was a part of the sort of broader Gawker family of uh, websites, which were all known for kind of, in a large way, creating the voice of a certain era of of media. Yeah. Um, certainly online. Yeah. You know, personal, casual, uh, opinionated. Uh, snarky, of course. Snarky, f- fun or funny in some combination, depending on the <laughs> particular thing. Yeah. And Deadspin kind of collapsed in on itself not all that long ago. Where in the timeline of your life and career did the uh, black holeization of Deadspin happen? So it was less than a year after I got hurt. You know, the, my colleagues at Deadspin saved my life that night. And so I was sort of tied to the site by blood almost. And, uh, you know, I, I never wanted to leave. I never wanted to write anywhere else. And, you know, what happened at the end of October in 2019 is that we were handed down edict by our new ownership saying we couldn't write about certain things that they didn't want us to write about. And it was the culmination of a lot of just horrible stuff that they had done to water down the site, including putting advertising on that made the site essentially unreadable for people who wanted to read it. So the website's ownership had traveled to the unlikely home of Univision for, for quite a while. Yes. That was after the Hulk Hogan case, which ended up bankrupting Gawker, and, and Univision scrapped it, picked up off the curb. Yeah. And then it had been sold on from there. And one of the edicts of the new ownership, as eventually, was that the site not cover things that weren't directly or indirectly about sports. Stick to sports. Right. Yeah. So the, the site had long featured the occasional thing that was in keeping with the tone of the site, but didn't have anything to do with sports. Right. And it was what kept us, us, like it was, and Megan Greenwell did a study. She, you know, she, when she took it to management at the time, she said 95% of our posts are about sports because we're a sports website because we all liked sports. But sometimes we would venture away from sports and it was because readers trusted us to do that. That if we wanted to argue about what the best sandwich is, that the readers would want to do that anyway because that's fun and that's part of just, you know, when you go to a baseball game, you don't talk about baseball for three hours. You talk about other stuff too. You talk about life. So, you know, it was just absurd to us because that that little part of it, it was not a huge part of the site. And yet it was just this idea that we were not being trusted with our own voice. Someone else, you know, was, you know, handing down edicts because they said, well, we don't, we don't actually like what you do. We own you, but we don't actually like what you do. And we want you to do it different. And we didn't want to do that. And we didn't want to do it without each other. So that's why we all quit at the exact same time. Was it scary to go through that? as you were trying to find your feet? I mean, like, literally trying to get your feet under you. I didn't mean to make that weird pun or whatever. No, but no, like- no, you can do that. No, because I was up and walking and exercising by then. So I was so, like, I was mobile. But you were still trying to figure out, like, what it meant that you had gone through this. There was still physical ramifications that you were dealing with. Correct. And you were walking off a gangplank with 
your colleagues who you loved who had saved your life. Yeah, and I and I didn't have health insurance if I had quit. We would have had to pay COBRA, which we did. So was it scary? It was one of those things where, so we quit like over the course of like a week. I'll say a week. I mean, really it was a few days, but uh, once my editor, Barry Pacheski, was fired by the CEO of Geomedia, a man named Jim Spanfeller, we all sort of agreed that we couldn't do this anymore. We didn't want to work for these people anymore. But I like, you know, I, I liked my job and, you know, I didn't want to be jobless and I wanted health insurance and I wanted something to do. And so I was still, you know, I was not in the first wave of people to quit. And you also drew, I mean, to be fair, like as the proprietor of a, of a blog myself, you know, you were working for one of the few outlets that had found its way out of the blog explosion, right? Yeah. As as social as social media had decimated the blog landscape. Right. You had an actual job writing for one of the very few outlets that had survived that decimation and and was still pretty successful. Yeah, and it was like where else will we be able to write like this? Cuz there, you know, there really wasn't and after we all quit, quickly found out that there wasn't a lot of places that we could do this, not even me. But it was uh, you know, it was I remember it was Halloween of 2019 and like Lauren Tyson had quit and Tom Lay, who runs Defector now, told us he was going to quit. And I was like, I have to, like, I was thinking of reasons not to do it, you know, to see if, you know, maybe there would be a way to sort of keep it together somehow. But it just became obvious that it wasn't going to happen and that I was going to have to quit. And I said to my wife, I said, are you, you know, I explained the situation to her and she's like, oh, well, you have to quit. And I was like, oh, all right. Okay. Then she sees it the same way I see it. I'm not, I'm not brain damaged this time. I know, I know the lay of the land perfectly. And I, I quit that morning. I handed in my resignation that morning. And it wasn't, it wasn't scary once I had made the decision. Once I made the decision, it was crystal clear that it was the correct decision. And I, to this day, I don't regret it one bit. You and your colleagues uh, started a new venture called Defector. That's right. Which, uh, at least from the outside, seems to have been a, a pretty significant success. Yes, it follows directly in the in the footsteps of your old gig. One of the big differences, though, is that unlike Deadspin, which launched when you know writing something neat on the internet would get out all over everywhere and uh, be shared on other people's blogs and uh, blah 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 blah, and people were excited about the prospect of new blogs. You did it in the uh, context of, you know, nine out of 10 blogs being uh, uh, wiped off the face of the earth. So it must have been scary to think, like, not only are we starting over, but we're not starting over in 2006 or whatever. We're starting over in a completely new landscape. In a pandemic, too. Yeah. Where we'll have to like figure out if we can reconnect with these people who who liked us and also figure out how to connect to new people. Yeah. That part of it must have been terrifying. So, no, it wasn't because we knew that we were going to start Defector by Christmas of 2019. We, we had been offered seed money by an investor 
So we knew that we were going to be able to get the band back together again. And then the pandemic hit, and then the seed money just wasn't coming. You know, we were like, where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the money? And they're like, you know, it wasn't coming. And then we were like, you know what? We can just do this ourselves. And once we decided to do it, we were so excited to just be together again doing it that that was more exciting than anything else. I think, you know, I was cocky because I'm me. I think my coworkers were nervous, but we didn't have anything to lose because if Defector had failed, well, we just would have been as jobless as we had been before we started it. So it was really sort of like, look, let's see if we can make ourselves jobs. And the worst thing that happens at the end of it is we still don't have jobs when we're done. But at least we'll have made some money for like, at least we'll have given ourselves jobs for like two months or something like that. And then what happened was that the site completely succeeded and we were able to hire people and we're doing great and we can pay our own health insurance now. So it's fantastic. To what extent do you feel like a different person now that you have been through the three experiences, one of which is being transformed by this brain injury into a different person physically by change in the physical landscape of your brain. Right. The process of going through an intense rehabilitation of not just your body, but your, of your, of your mind and your feelings and your way of relating to the world. And completely flipping on its head the thing that you do for a living from which you had derived your identity. <laughs> like doing all of those things in the course of 18 months or whatever. That was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, the one thing that I learned though is that the brain is a fabulous organ. When it got the damage, it recognized the damage and started to rewire itself, you know, to work around what it had. So this was not anything that I necessarily did consciously. Like I lost part of my taste, but like my brain sort of rewired itself. So things that tasted blander or I thought were missing, that there were facets to it again. Not They weren't didn't taste the same as they used to, but they taste like something. And so I've just been frankly grateful to sit back and you know, watch this stupid organ do its work because I'm not doing anything. It's the it's the neurons doing all the work, but they all have, you know, essentially done their duty in terms of human primal adaptability. Like I just that is life. You know, you you go through bad things and you learn to just live as you go. Like it's you you survive as best you can and you just keep going. As my wife kept going when I was in my house in on my deathbed, and you know, all throughout this, it, you know, I I think I've been less trepidatious and less stressed out. Although my stress certainly manifested itself in interesting ways, than I have been just sort of amazed at you know just how much has progressed since then, and and how comfortable I've become in the skin. I think I like myself more now than perhaps I ever have. Although, you know, maybe I'll screw up tomorrow and I'll ruin it all over again. But I I don't know. It's just been a learning process and it's been fun to learn, even though it was stuff I didn't want to learn when I started. Drew, thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. I really enjoyed your book. 
I enjoyed you enjoying the book, and I love talking to you. You asked some tough questions. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to think about them more tonight. Thank you so much, man. Drew McGarry. His book is called The Night the Lights Went Out. Find it at your local bookstore. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where this week I took a walk over to the Lummis home, the home of Charles Lummis, one of the most important early Angelinos. He popularized Southwestern aesthetics, one of the first aesthetic movements truly native to the United States. Fascinating guy, Charles Lummis. You go visit his house if you're in Northeast Los Angeles sometime. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer, Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We also get some help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Thanks to him for loaning us his Serato controllers. We needed to borrow someone's Serato controllers. He was nice enough to lend us his. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 